0: When our uh, team from Southside went to Croatia last summer, part of what we were blessed to do while we were there uh, was to serve and encourage some refugee families from the Ukraine. Um, I was reminded of this uh, just this week when I received a newsletter from uh, a former Southside member, Jeff Mitchell. He and his wife are doing a great ministry uh, in the country of Moldova, which is a neighbor to the Ukraine, and they even have a place there uh, called the House of Hope. And uh, those of you who remember Jeff would just be so proud of what he and his wife are doing there as they just beautifully serve uh, refugee families uh, there in Moldova. Um, I was just so encouraged this week to read about the work that they're doing and all the ways that the Lord's using uh, Jeff and his wife there. Um, You know, today is day 403 of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Almost 43,000 people have died. 15,000 people are missing. Approximately 14 million people have been displaced. And so it's just a tragic situation. It's good to remember that it's still happening so that we can be in prayer. So that we can maybe support people like Jeff, who are there helping on the ground and others. Well this morning, let me ask you a hypothetical question. How do you think people would react if all of a sudden, Vladimir Putin came on television and said, "You know what? I've had a change of heart. I've been wrong to invade, and now I want to spend the rest of my days encouraging and in support of the Ukraine. How would people react? How would you react? I would be a little bit skeptical myself. Well, in our text this morning, we learn that Ananias was not the only person who was a little skeptical of Saul's conversion? He wasn't the only one who was a little hesitant, who was a little bit uncertain about the genuineness of Saul's conversion. Verse 21 reads All those in Damascus who heard him were astonished. And they asked, Is, Isn't this the man who had caused all the great havoc? Among our people? And hasn't he come here to arrest us and to take us to prison? Both were really good questions. Both are fair and legitimate questions. We know from Acts chapter 8 that Saul, the language that Luke uses there, is that Saul destroyed the church. Literally, that word destroy, it means, uh, it's used to describe what a wild and savage beast will do when they tear the flesh of their prey. And so Saul did that to the church. And so he's presented as this kind of untamed beast who wreaked havoc on the church, going from house to house, dragging off men and women to prison. And so then when we pick up in verse nine and, and, and chapter nine in verse one, we see there that he was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Saul was speaking murderous threats like, "We'll take a breath." Perhaps he was saying things like, "If you don't stop talking about Jesus, I will kill you." I don't know. They were murderous threats. And so all those in Damascus who heard him were astonished, and rightly so. Verse 22, yet Saul grew more and more powerful, and this baffled the Jews living in Jerusalem as he was proving that Jesus is the Christ. The Jews in Damascus, Luke tells us, were baffled. They were bewildered. They were perplexed. It's a person's natural response when presented with an unexplained occurrence to be baffled. You see, they, 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 they can't wrap their mind around what they're seeing and hearing. What they're witnessing with this conversion of Saul is unexplainable. It makes no sense. And so they're baffled. Verse 26, when Saul came to Jerusalem after he left Damascus, he tried to join the disciples there. Literally, he tried and kept trying. It's kind of like he just kept running his head up against a brick wall, trying to join the disciples. He tried and kept trying, but they were all afraid of him, Luke says. Not one of them bought his story. None of them believed he was really a disciple. Luke says that it was because of fear that they did not believe him. And understandably so. After multiple attempts by Saul, Luke tells us that the disciples in Jerusalem did not accept him. So, verse 21, they were all astonished. Verse 22, they were all baffled. Verse 26, they were all afraid. All of them. And here's the thing. How could a murderous, ferocious beast, the lead persecutor of the church, how could he transform into a bold and powerful disciple of Jesus? Nobody's buying it. Everyone is skeptical. How is it possible? What happened? There's only one thing that could have caused a transformation like this one. And that is an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only way. Saul must have met the resurrected Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. It must be true. Listen, on this Palm Sunday, 2023, at the beginning of this holy week that culminates with our observance of Jesus' death on Good Friday and his resurrection on on Easter Sunday, the world will be asking the question this week, did Jesus really raise from the dead? What proof is there of his resurrection? Brothers and sisters, look no further than the conversion of Saul. This is exhibit A. There's no other explanation for the change in his life. It must be true. Verse 21, they were all astonished. Verse 22, they were all baffled. Verse 26, they were all afraid. But what if it is true? What if Saul really did meet the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus? scott mcknight is one of my favorite authors and scholars um i recommend wholeheartedly to you anything that he writes and in his commentary on acts he asks this great question about this text he asks, how does one move from having questions and even being cynical to trusting a person's claims about being a follower of jesus How did these disciples in Damascus and these disciples in Jerusalem, how do they move from having these questions and from even being cynical to trusting this person's claims about being a follower of Jesus? I don't know. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. Maybe you've been in a situation where After your conversion, people questioned whether your conversion was genuine or not. Perhaps you've been in a situation where someone close to you has converted to Jesus Christ, and you've kind of questioned it a little bit. Well, how do we transition from our questions, and maybe even being cynical, to believing and trusting that someone is a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, typically... The answer to that question is fruit. It's fruit. When we see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And what does that fruit look like? Well, the simple answer is it looks like Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit enables two kinds of fruit in the life of a follower. The fruit of transformation and the fruit of proclamation. In other words, look at their character and listen to their words because you can see and hear fruit. As a follower, my life is changed more into the character and likeness of Jesus. That's the fruit of transformation, right? Glenn prayed that for us earlier, that we be transformed more into the likeness and character of jesus christ that's that fruit of transformation that happens in our life of one who's been converted to christ and has received that holy spirit and then also as a follower my tongue is empowered to speak and witness about the person of jesus that's the fruit of proclamation And there are both kinds of fruit that happen in the life of a believer. The fruit of transformation and the fruit of proclamation. And what we see here early on in the ministry of Saul is both. We see a changed life. And we see an empowered tongue. And so following his conversion... Picking up here in verse 19, we we see that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And then in verse 20, here's how the sentence literally reads. It reads, immediately in the synagogues, he preached Jesus. I love that. In the synagogues, he preached Jesus. He told everyone about Jesus. Jesus what did he say about Jesus? What would would you say about Jesus? Well, Saul did two things. He shared his testimony. We, We might say that he shared his story. He told of his conversion, how he had met Jesus on the road. And in addition, he was a witness. You see, not only do we need to tell others about what Jesus has done for us, But we need to tell others about who Jesus is. A witness testifies to the identity of Jesus. And our text this morning shares three important aspects about the identity of Jesus. And each one is a crucial part to who Saul believed Jesus to be. You know, sometimes when we have opportunity to share with someone else about Jesus, we don't know what to say. Well, we can, we can share our story. We can share what Jesus has done for us. But we're also called to be witnesses. It's simply to tell others who Jesus is. To share with someone else the, about the identity of Jesus. The world needs to know what Christ what Jesus Christ has done for us, but the world also needs to know who he is. And so this is what we see Saul do here early on in his ministry. He shares three important aspects about the the identity of Jesus. I'm going to tell these three to you, and then we're going to look at each one of them. First, he preached that Jesus is the Son of God. That's verse 20. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And so that's the first important aspect of of the identity of Jesus. This title describes Jesus' relationship with God. He's the Son. Second, he proved that Jesus is the Christ of Israel. That's verse 22. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful, and this baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And so this title describes Jesus' relationship with Israel, with the Jews. He's the Christ of Israel. And then third, he proclaimed that Jesus is Lord of all. Verse 28. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. This title describes Jesus' relationship with the world. And so he's the son of God. This describes his relationship with God. He's the Christ of Israel. This title describes his relationship with the Jews, with Israel. And then he's the Lord of all. This title describes his relationship with the world. And here's the amazing thing: Luke tells us in this text that Saul is a witness to each one of these in his ministry. And I want us to spend time this morning looking at each one. And you know, for many of us, this is kind of like Jesus 101. but it's so, so important. It's in so many ways it's so basic. But it's so important because sometimes those of us who have been Christians for many, many years, we forget, I needed the reminder this week that the world needs to hear who Jesus is. The world needs to be told who Jesus is. And so I, I, my hope, my prayer is that this will, this, this will remind us and will encourage us as we look at the identity of Christ this morning. This first one, number one, he preached that Jesus is the Son of God. If you were to hear Saul give a sermon, that's what he's preaching about. Jesus as the Son of God. Now, it's a a very important title given to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Right, Luke is volume one, Acts is volume two. And so this title, Jesus as a son of God, is a very, very important one given to him in the gospel of Luke. And I want you to see this just by kind of taking us through some of the ways this title is used in his gospel. In Luke chapter one, in verse 31 and 32, we find there um, that the angel Gabriel tells Mary that her son will be called the Son of God. And so as Gabriel appeal, appears to Mary and lets Mary know that, her, that she's going to, uh, a child is going to come to her and that his name will be Jesus, Gabriel also tells Mary that he will be called the Son of God. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 22, at the baptism of Jesus, heavens opened up. And the Holy Spirit de- descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven and says, you are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 3, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by the devil, it's the t- this is the title that the devil questions. He says, if you really are the son of God, then tell this stone to become bread. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 35, at his transfiguration, there's a voice from the heavens, from the clouds, saying, This is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. And then in Luke chapter 22 and 70, verse 70 in chapter 22, when Jesus is before all the elders of the people, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, they all asked him, Are you then the son of God? And the response that will send him to the cross. He says, you are right in saying that I am. And so it's a very important title given to Jesus in the gospel of Luke. Luke is traditionally thought of as one of Paul's traveling companions. And so the preaching of Paul is believed to have been a primary source for Luke's gospel. And so here at the outset of Saul's ministry, when Luke tells us that Saul preaches That Jesus is the Son of God. Much of what he preached about is most likely recorded in Luke's gospel. He preached about Jesus being the Son of God. And I like that that Luke uses this verb preach here to describe the way that Saul speaks about Jesus as the Son of God. You know, when I I hear a really good quote, or um, someone tells me a really good story, or somebody makes. A really good point. I will often say to nobody in particular out loud, oh, that'll preach. Perhaps you've done that yourself. And that's how I think Saul felt about this title, Son of God, for Jesus. He thought, oh, that'll preach because not only is it a title that's used a lot in the Gospel of Luke, but Paul uses this title all throughout his letters. Uh, It's an important title to Paul, because it describes Jesus' relationship with God. Jesus is the Son of God. Paul would write in Galatians, um, in one of the most important texts I think that Paul has given to us in Galatians chapter 4, he said, When the time had fully come, God sent his Son to redeem us so that we might become sons and daughters. Of God and so this relationship that Jesus had with God as his son as the son of God he redeems us and shares that relationship with us so that we can become sons and daughters of God and so Saul preached that Jesus is the son of God second he proved that Jesus is the Christ of Israel This title describes Jesus' relationship with the people of Israel. You know, for those of us who have uh, grown up going to church and Sunday school and hearing all the Bible stories, there's always a moment when you come to the realization that that Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know, you're like, oh, all along I thought that was his last name. But it's a title, It's a title given to Jesus, and it has a rich Jewish history. Jesus is the Christ. Literally, he's the anointed one. Prophets, priests, kings were all anointed throughout the history of Israel. And so this idea of the Christ came uh, to be associated with the anointed one. God had promised that a king would come and occupy David's throne for all of eternity. And so the Jews wait expectantly for the coming of the Christ. Luke tells us that Saul proved, that's the language he uses, he preached that Jesus is the Son of God. But, but Luke tells us that he proved that Jesus is the Christ of Israel. Interestingly, the term prove has the meaning to unite. So it means to combine two things together as one. It literally means to place together. And so in this instance, it means to, for, what, what, what Saul is doing is that he puts together the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament about the Christ together with the fulfillment of those promises and prophecies in the life of Jesus. I love that. Isn't that, a good, isn't that a good imagery? The good, that I love that word picture of putting two things together, the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Christ and their fulfillment, the fulfillment of the promises and these prophecies in the life of Jesus And he brings those two things together. There's a great exchange between Jesus and two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. In verse 25, Jesus says to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken about the Christ. Did he not have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Luke says, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, that's what Jesus did with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. He he proved that he was the Christ. He brought all the Old Testament promises and prophecies together with his life. perhaps you've seen this before. It's a famous study. Uh, I first came across it in a little book called um, "The Case for Christ" by Lee Strobel but uh, it's it's an apologetic a uh, study that was back in the 60s, I believe, uh, the mathematics and astronomy professor named Peter, Stone, uh, Peter Stoner, um, who kind of famously made this uh, mathematical uh, statement. That, and here's what he said. It's really interesting. He said that the chances of just eight, of just eight, of the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled by one person. Now, you know, there's a chance that someone might fulfill one of the prophecies or someone else might fulfill another one of the prophecies. But the chance, the mathematical chance, that one person would fulfill eight of the Old Testament prophecies is 10 to the 17th power. That's one and 17 zeros. That's the equivalent to covering the whole state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. Picture this. The entire state of Texas covered in silver dollars two feet deep and then expecting a blindfolded man to walk across the state And on the very first try, find the one coin that you marked. That's the probability of eight of the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled by one person. Well, there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies and promises. And they're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Every last one of them. And so it's of great worth. It's of great effort to bring those two things together. To help someone see. To knit together. To unite the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament with the life of Jesus Christ. To show that he is the Christ. And so that's what, that's what Saul did. He proved that Jesus is the Christ of Israel. And then third... He proclaimed that Jesus is Lord of all. Verse 28, we read that Saul stayed with them there in Jerusalem. He moved about freely, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. The verb there used for Saul's speech is just one word, and it means to proclaim freely, to proclaim openly. Uh, There, in my translation, it's to uh, proclaim boldly. I love what one author writes. He says, to speak boldly in the name of the Lord is the willingness to be clear in the face of fear. To speak boldly in the name of the Lord is the willingness to be clear in the face of fear that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. You see, in the Roman Empire... In the the first century, Caesar was Lord. But Saul proclaimed that Jesus is the Lord of all. He was clear even in the face of fear. Listen, Jesus was not just a good moral teacher. And he didn't die on the cross and raise from the dead in order to just float away into the clouds, not to be heard from again until Judgment Day. Allow me to be clear. Jesus is the Lord of all. And he reigns today from the right hand of the Father, where he pours out the Holy Spirit on all who call on his name. When you come to Jesus, you come to surrender your life to him. When you come to Jesus, you come to submit your life to his authority. He is Lord of all. So Saul was a witness to the identity of Jesus. He preached that Jesus is the Son of God. He preached that that jesus that that God sent his Son so that we could be sons and daughters He's the Son of God. We can know God because we know the Son we can know the father we we 've been given a spirit of that cries out within us, Abba, Father. He's the Son of God. He, he proved that Jesus is the Christ of Israel. All the promises, all the prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus, every last one of them. And he proclaimed that Jesus is Lord of all. He lives and he reigns today. This Morning. I want to share with you as an invitation uh, the words of a theologian. His name is Thomas Oden, and he wrote these words. Let's kind of allow these words to serve as, a, as an invitation to us as we conclude this morning. Here's what he wrote The single most pivotal question is whether Jesus is rightly understood as the Son of God, the Christ of Israel, and the Lord of all, or not. There's no way to dodge artfully this question so as to conclude that Jesus might be partially Lord, or to a certain degree the Christ, or maybe in some ways the Son of God. There's no middle way. There's no golden mean. This is the startling question that his life continually asks. The nearer one comes to him, the more clearly he requires that decision. It's the unavoidable issue that the observer of Jesus' life must finally come up against, for Jesus himself presses and requires that decision. To avoid the issue is to avoid him, and to avoid him is to avoid a Christianity altogether. I love that. It's the single most pivotal question. Is Jesus the Son of God, the Christ of Israel, and the Lord of all or not? Listen, your salvation this morning does not depend upon your good works. It does not depend upon your church attendance. However, it does depend upon how you respond to that question Is Jesus Son of God? Christ of Israel, and the Lord of all, or not. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just the reminder of who Jesus is. Thank you, Lord. It's it's good uh, to be reminded of the identity of Jesus. And Lord, as we share... All that Jesus has done for us. May we also, through your spirit, Lord, empower and enable our tongues to be witnesses to who he is. Son of God, Christ of Israel, and the Lord of all. We worship him morning together. We think about him this week, especially, Lord, this holy week. We think about everything that he had to go through on our behalf. We praise you for Jesus. Thank you for him. It's his name that we pray. Amen. This morning, I want to I offer the invitation if you're here this morning and you've never responded to that question, this morning you have an, a, an opportunity to respond, to say, yes, I believe. This room is filled with people who have said, yes, I believe. I believe that is who Jesus is. And if you're here this morning and if you've, you've never made that decision, you've never responded, well, we'd love for you to respond this morning and say, yes, I believe that's who Jesus is, and come and put him on in baptism. Surrender your life to him. Submit yourself to him in baptism this morning. Put your faith in him. We'd love, I mean, there's nothing better to, no better way to spend our time together So if you're here this morning and you want to say yes to Jesus, come this morning as we stand together and sing.